Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Software Crafts podcast. My name is João, and today with us we have Philip Carter. Hi, Philip. Hey. Um, yeah, I'm Philip Carter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are, uh, and thanks to, to be uh, with us. Philip will uh, uh, talk a bit about himself uh, a bit later in the podcast as well. And as a starter, um, I'm going to just... Uh, Put the heuristic also in the table and then Philip can connect all the dots uh, because this heuristic comes from uh, uh, the personal repository. The heuristic is focusing on developer experience can make your products more powerful and your teams more empowered. Why did you uh, decide to, to bring this heuristic to the podcast? Yeah, um, uh, a couple of reasons. So um, first, I think it's perhaps a more selfish reason than anything else. I have been focusing on developer experience for most of my career. And so that's something that um, on short notice, I could probably talk your ear off for as long as you're willing to hear me out. Um, so I, I feel like that that's that's usually a pretty good topic for a podcast if 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 uh, if, if I can uh, do that. Um, but then the second one is especially in the past couple of years, I would say that uh, developer experiences sort of uh, entered the cultural zeitgeist of software engineering, I'd say, like it's something that's always been around. Like it, it didn't, it didn't just start a couple of years ago. Uh, but now we see, uh, for example, like my role at, um, honeycomb where, uh, I am a developer experience PM like that, that is an actual role that is showing up in a lot of other, uh, organizations. And then there's developer experience engineers that are showing up in other organizations and there's people blogging about it all the time. I believe, uh, uh one of the more, um, uh, a 16 Z, um, they're a large investment firm, Andreessen Horowitz, I think they've invested in tons of like really, really big successful startups and all that kind of stuff. They have a publishing arm uh, that talks a lot about developer experience as well. And, you know, they're trying to push out a message of what they think it's all about. And, and, and especially I think in the, uh, in this past decade um, or I should say 2020 on there, there's been a lot of companies that are, that are starting to rise up in the, in the startup space that are focusing on targeting software engineers and building what they believe to be better developer experiences for these software engineers. Um, and so I think it's an important topic because it's, it's growing, it's, it's trending, I guess. Uh, but I think it's also, uh, it's not that well understood or, um, and I will also say that I'm not entirely convinced that every single company really knows how to do it well. Uh, and you get a lot of varying developer experiences from tool to tool, to company to company. Um, and there's, there's, there's a couple things that I think some people have standardized on, um, to make their internal developer experience and like their, their internal developer practices a little bit better. Uh, but, um, it's also like an area of opportunity for people to improve. And, and I believe that, um, you know, in this world where, uh, software is kind of everywhere and software engineers are ultimately the people who um, make new things with software happen. Um, you have this constraint problem that you have to solve, which is how do you, how do you do it as fast as possible and as maintainable a way as possible so that you're not sacrificing your code quality and you know, long-term maintainability of the system that you're building. Um, that constraint problem, like that is what developer experience is all about. How do I reduce the time so I can get to market in a way that doesn't screw me over in the long run? Um, and that is, I think, at the forefront of a lot of developers minds. And, uh, that means the forefront of a growing population, uh, and the minds of a growing population because developers are increasing year over year. And I think we're, I wouldn't be surprised if we have 10 times the amount of developers 10 years from now. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess long story short, I think it's an important topic for our field. Uh, I do believe so. Uh, and, um, indeed I, um, have the same perception that developer experience just started to be a first-class citizen and we see more and more uh, picking up so if i can summarize let's let's start from the concept of developer experience 
this is about sustaining in your definition if i understand correctly it's about sustaining the the software engineering efforts across time how can i reduce my time to market and sustain it did i got it right yeah yeah pretty much i mean you know i think we can all agree that uh you can reduce your time to market in a very cheap way that will screw you over in the long run um and that would be probably a bad developer experience and you know maybe you know optimizing for short-term gains and you know there's probably some circumstances where that's actually the right thing to do but um usually i think most engineers would agree that uh you know it's better to figure out a proper way to do something and be a little bit more thoughtful about how you write your code before you you go to market and so um I guess you could say it's almost like a balancing act. Like how do you balance your um, long-term maintainability with your ability to go to market as soon as possible and get new features out and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, there's, there, there's a lot of pieces to that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, little sub experiences that range from uh, everything from like the act of you actually typing in your code editor to be more productive in that sense all the way to, you know, how do you make your builds faster? How do you get more information out of your builds when problems happen? How do you, uh, observability, for example, is, is one example of this where uh, you actually have deployed something, but you may not necessarily have released it because you want to ensure that the code that you wrote is actually gonna work with the rest of the code that is also deployed out into the world. Kind of everything in between there. Um, and that isn't to say that the, the entire software development lifecycle is developer experience. It's clearly not. Uh, but your developer experience sort of shows up at a lot of different stages of that entire lifecycle. Definitely, which pulls me to the next question, because you talk about the interception in uh, when we are. So let's just imagine I have code on my IDE needs to be released to production so all of those activities that happen that can be performed by humans or machines depending on your level of automation so i can understand that is that layer when we start to interact with tools that the, the, the developer experience can be leveraged or getting in the way is this assumption correct yes absolutely um let me start with a an example that is um, kind of the very low level. So uh, I used to work for Microsoft. Um, and I think I can say pretty confidently that Microsoft has understood to a degree, at least, that developer experience is important for a very long time. Uh, their area of focus has been much more on the uh, language and IDE side rather than um, other parts of the development life cycle. Um, but uh, I want to focus on that a little bit because I think it's pretty interesting and there's some very stark comparisons that you can make. So let's take two uh, software developers. Let's say uh, it's the year 2017 and you are a Go developer compared to a C-sharp developer, right? I believe that your average C-sharp developer at that time is more productive at the IDE level, basically, that, that sort of slice of the life cycle than your average Go developer. Um, I'm sure that that might be a bit of a controversial statement. The, uh, you know, I've, uh, I used to work on the C-sharp compiler, and so I know that the C-sharp compiler is not really any slower than the Go compiler. So uh, that was one of the benefits touted for Go at the time was that compile times are fast. Well. .NET compile times are fast too. Uh, but the reason why I say that I think the C-sharp developer is more productive actually is it really just comes down to how much time they, they would have to spend looking up how to actually use an API, okay? So in Go and a lot of other languages, um, this is getting better now, by the way, but for a long time, it was, it was if you, even if you wanted to use the standard the library, if you were not already an expert in the particular API that you're using, you'd have to look it up, right? And that's not terrible, right? Okay, there's documentation. You can then see, okay, here's like this type and there's these functions that I can call and these are the parameters and this is what they mean. And okay, I could probably figure it out from there. Um, but that entire process is oftentimes completely unnecessary if you have good IDE tooling. Uh, for your average C-sharp.net developer, um, 
a combination of factors, uh, literally from the language design itself, what's called type-directed semantics, basically a way of saying that, well, there is a thing that I am operating on and that constrains what is available to me based off of the type of that thing. That, that is a, uh, an interesting language design principle that can surface directly into your developer experience because it can influence what tools are available to show you. And so every c or Java developer knows you, you hit the dot button on, on you know, sorry, the, the, the dot key on your keyboard, uh, and then you get a completion list. And that shows things that you can call. Uh, and you can do API exploration just by typing in your IDE and seeing what is available. On top of that, let's say you call a method uh, and you type your parentheses key so, because you want to add a parameter to that. Well, there's an additional level of tooling that pops up and it says, hey, we know what the definition of this API is. So we know that this method takes you know, these three parameters in this order and these are what the types of those parameters are. These are their names. If there's additional documentation that, the, that was built by the developers that's embedded into the library, that can actually be pulled into the tooltip. And then it can say, okay, well, not only is this, you know, this particular method available, but it takes these parameters. This parameter is an integer. It's called, you know, whatever the integer is called. This one is Boolean. Um, and another is another, another object type. And so now you know, okay, these are the three things that I'm going to have to pass in in this particular order. Another one is an object type. I might be able to construct that in line or I'll have to, you know, create an instance of that somewhere else or something like that. But at no point that I actually have to leave my editor to understand this information. Um, that is not the case for a lot of languages today. And that was certainly not the case even just a couple of years ago. Now the, the, the bar is being risen significantly. Um, I think, and a lot more languages are starting to have this sort of tooling. Um, but I believe that, uh, you know, if at the end of the day, if your job is to just solve problems with code as your vehicle, um, if you're spending a lot of time hopping around between your, your, your code, where, where you're thinking through the execution of how things, how things are going to actually work and, library documentation because you're stuck trying to figure out how you're going to actually call something or like what APIs are even available. Um, that's a, that's a massive time sink uh, because you know, you, if you're, especially if you're in the flow state and you're not hundred percent familiar with an API, uh, if you have to leave that flow state constantly, um, at least I learned in college that it takes about 15 minutes to get back into that, that kind of uh, mindset. And so multiply that by the number of developers in an organization by however many times they end up getting out of the flow state. And that, that's a significant cost to your business effectively, um, preventing you from delivering as, as fast as possible. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of other things that'll get you out of your flow state, right? You know, everything from another employee tapping you on the shoulder to tell you to watch this, you know, hilarious video on YouTube to, you know, uh, the C-sharp developers don't have it perfect either. Like the IDE could crash or something like that. And, you know, all sorts of problems could happen there. But I, I think that there's, um, there's a lot of times where it's solely about the developer experience where having better tools and better, um, better, even just better diagnostics or better, really anything, um, keeps you in that state and makes you much more productive. And then over time, uh, that makes your business more productive. Definitely, definitely. So I, um, I consider myself a, self, a software engineer and at art. So um, I know the pain uh, um, because I also started with the, the Microsoft world. So I actually witness the evolution uh, and the rise of new stars, right? So uh, in that space, what uh, JetBrains has been doing, has been pushing Microsoft, right? In the end, it's about competition, which means that everyone starts to catch up, which is good for for the community. So we focus on, uh, as you said, code as a vehicle to, to solve a business problem rather than we lost time on all the plumbing and we have lots of plumbing uh, in our craft. You trigger me, so in your introduction, uh, you also said that you find in the in our industry that the developer experience is not a well understood concept. Uh, why do you think that that is happening? It's a good question. Um, so when when I when I read like articles on developer experience, or you know, that there's there's a couple people in our industry who you know you can follow on Twitter or something like that who talk about it all the time. Um, I've noticed a few things. 
One thing that I've noticed is that this uh, notion of developer experience is really starting to get pushed by uh, people coming from the front end uh, web development uh, part of our field. Um, and I believe the reason why is because the, you know, if, if you're building front end applications that this is what the users directly interact with, well, you're going to be pretty inclined to make sure that there's a good experience there because you're the, the face of the application that, that, that people are using. Um, and I feel like that the mindset that you develop from that, if you take a step back and say, well, how do I improve my own processes? Well, you're going to be starting from an experience level, not necessarily a technology level and say, okay, what are, what are, what are the areas that that could improve here? I think that is a good thing. Um, I love front end developers because they're always thinking about things from the experience first and walking back. How do I, um, how do I implement this? And, and, you know, that isn't to say that people on the back end don't do this either. There's millions of amazing back end developers who do this as well. But oftentimes when you're not on the front end side and, and you're thinking about, you know, the plumbing from component, component A to component B, uh, you're, you're oftentimes so abstracted from the experience of the application that you're, uh, you think more about the technology itself than, than, than anything else. Um, at least that's how I've found myself to be whenever, whenever I'm doing backend work of any sort, uh, be it for a web application or you know, a compiler in a past life. Um, much more focused on plumbing than I am, uh, what the experience needs to be at the end of the day. Um, that's good, but also I think skews what the notion of developer experience is. Uh, there's a lot of focus on front-end frameworks right now. I think that there's a, a really great uh, company out there called Vercel that, that had built the Next.js uh, framework for uh, web developers. And they're kind of positioning themselves as like the de a developer-first developer experience uh, company. And, and having used their product and built a Next.js app, deployed it onto their, their, their backend and stuff, I think they've nailed a lot of developer experiences. They've, they've really polished up this um, build to publish pipeline um, made things very, very like code focused in that. So like the framework with Next.js that, that you use when, when you, when you call APIs from, from the front end, like it just, I don't know how to describe it. It just works. Uh, when you deploy it, like, like the mapping between these local, like functions that are running on your own machine when you're in development mode to like real serverless functions that are running on their backend, uh, um, is just seamless, like it's an abstraction that actually fits. And I think they, they nailed that really well. And so I can under, I can directly understand what's happening on, on their uh, platform compared to uh, my uh, local experience. I don't have to like learn how to do things twice basically, which is good. Um, but there's a whole lot more to a developer experience than just front end development and web applications. Um, one example of this is just let's say uh, GitHub Actions, right? This The CI uh, system, okay? Um, people at GitHub will tell me that GitHub Actions is more than just a CI system. And yes, I agree it is, but uh, most people use it for uh, CI. Um, to this day, you still cannot get structured test logs out of that, right? And so, for example, when you're doing .NET, and I believe uh, Java development has this as well, almost all the, the frameworks have a standardized way to emit um, logs from, from, uh, from tests that are, that are structured. They're oftentimes in, in XML, and they're really easy to build UI around so that it's, it's very quick to navigate to like, hey, what was the thing that failed and what's some information about why it failed? Um, yes, you could maybe find the name of the test in, in the, the raw log that's spit out by GitHub Actions and then go back to your development environment, try to find that test, try to reproduce it locally and stuff like that. But that is such a big time sink compared to just seeing something right there in the environment where it failed. Um, and that is a, that, that, that's, I would consider that an example of poor development, poor developer experience um, that impacts a wider swath of developers than uh, things that are like front-end framework focused. Uh, and yet, I don't see a lot of chatter, I guess, when, 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 when people in our field are talking about developer experience, about things like, how do I make sure that my diagnostics for the thing that I'm doing are as detailed as possible? Um, 
how do I make sure that not only are they detailed, but they're structured in a way that a system can read them and they, they don't require a human to scan over things and, and do that because we, we love to automate things. We like to have systems read things and bubble up the important information rather than force our brains to, to do that ourselves. Um, uh, a couple of other things that don't, don't come up as often either is, um, I mean, this is kind of on the diagnostics front, but like when you're crossing system boundaries, when you're from your application code to your database and then back again, via either an ORM or something like that, um, even something just as simple as like, let, let's say something failed or even something succeeded, how do I get detailed information about that? Um, uh, going into the more uh, production side of things, I mean, the classic problem, of course, is, oh, it works on my machine, doesn't work on somebody else's machine, right? But like, it shouldn't be that way. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit biased because I work for a company that tries to push the notion of um, you should be pushing things out into production. You should be doing, you know, air quotes, test in production. Uh, and what's meant by that is, is a different practice. You know, you're not, you're not just throwing something over the wall and hoping it succeeds and, and letting users bang around on it and, and hope you can figure out what the problem was when they report that something is, is an issue. Um, you have a system that is able to understand this is how my application is running in the real world with real people using it. And I can, surface important details about why something is failing or why something might be slow or the weird condition why something might be slow that's true for like one percent of my users but not for 99 percent of my users um and then even something just as basic as i as a developer understand what my application being healthy means right because i mean i i think that that's that's a fundamental question that like a lot of developers cannot honestly answer is if you ask them and say okay you build a system and it's out there in the wild. Do you know that it's doing well? Like it's performing well, it has like acceptable error rates, it's, it's, uh, it's doing what you think it's doing. Um, I think most developers could not honestly say yes. Uh, they would probably have to say, ugh, probably not. Um, and, that, and that is, you know, if they get a problem, uh, it's like guesswork trying to figure out what happened um, why it's happening. Uh, you're throwing stuff at the wall, just, just throwing patches out there to see if it fixes it. Um, that doesn't mean that you're a bad software engineer by any means. It just means that you don't have tools that give you the developer experience that you need to uh, be much more uh, structured and thoughtful about how you deal with issues that you have out in production. And, and so this is kind of a rambly answer, I guess, but I'm just trying to sort of uh, say that there's a lot of places where developer experience matters that um, are not really focused on, you know, if you were to Google around for developer experience and try to find things that are written about it and people who talk about it, um, they don't talk about these things as often. I, uh, I do believe so. Right. So, uh, um, and there's, um, community or as a software industry we move slowly although we produce software that changes the world's fast uh, but i think that we are still learning what this means for us uh, and my theory is that somehow because we got at some point inspired by lean especially with devops movement people connect software to to the the, the, the manufacturing processes right however we forget that software, I usually say this, and I say this a lot on, on the podcast, have a very, very special quality that is flexibility change in production. It's very easy to change software in production, which is not easy to change a car once it's in production or a glass, or right, because we need to destroy and rebuild it. Software has this flexibility, and we are still trying to understand, as you said, pushing some understanding to the right rather than throw things over the wall. And I find that very interesting, which leads me to the next question, because you talked that lots of companies didn't implement this well. And I start to see companies with a certain scale implementing platform teams to help their internal development community to be faster. When you were referring to companies that don't get developer experience or the implementation correct, were you referring to these platform 
type of teams that can exist in a company that focus on their developer experience? Or are you referring to tools or IDEs and examples like that? I would say a little bit of both. So um, I am personally very heartened that a lot of uh, companies out there are starting to spin up developer experience teams because th that means that they, they've understood that the developer experience of their organization matters deeply to their ability to execute as a business. Um, I think where that, that also hints at a great deal of immaturity though, because this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, I, you know, it, it, sort of, so they're, they're, they're for larger company. Okay. So like there's some, you know, the, some of the big tech companies like Google and meta, uh, used to be called Facebook uh, and uh, Microsoft and such, you know, they, they've always had some incredible tooling. Like, you know, the, the, the meme was that uh, if you go to Google in the 2010s, you never want to leave because uh, not, not necessarily because you love working at Google so much, but because the system that you're working with is so much better than anything else in the world that you cannot possibly imagine being a software engineer on something as primitive as what the outside world has, you know, they, 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 they built, they, they were really one of the first people that truly built like proper mono repo tooling and how to build effective build systems and like all kinds of really interesting stuff that's now started to spread across our industry. Um, but most organizations have nothing like that at all. Um, if they purchase developer tools at all, uh, that would be great, but that was often kind of the extent of it. Uh, or they, they purchased really kind of the, the, you know, team management software or, you know, something like Jira or team foundation server or something like that to, to help manage things. Um, but not necessarily invest a lot in their own bespoke things. And, uh, you know, if you're at a small enough scale, you end up not really needing to do that because there, there's sometimes some like off the shelf products either that come as a part of something you've already built, or, you know, you can just follow a, a framework that, that will work for your systems. But, uh, I think once you cross this threshold of, you know, 50 plus developers on, in, in your organization, um, you end up having too many custom concerns that, uh, no tooling vendor has a solution for. Uh, and, you know, maybe they have a, a, a solution that can work if you just kind of tweak a few things with your build or you, you organize your code a particular way or something like that. Um, you know, there's, uh, you, you, can, you can do that. Um, another thing is, uh, you know, internal documentation is always a problem that larger organizations have. And, you know, there's now some companies that are starting to spin up. How do you, how do you host internal documentation uh, as easily as possible and make it as easy to maintain as possible. I believe the company's name is readme that, that a lot of people are starting to like. Um, and people are sort of recognizing, Hey, you know, there, there's more vendors popping up that, you know, if we do a little bit of work on our end, we can use a tool that will solve a significant problem for us. Um, and, but we have to do some work there. Uh, and, you know, again, happy to see that happen. I, I love to see that happen. I think that more of that is needed in our industry. Um, but I think that that's also only a little bit surface level, um, you know, because to your point, software changes all the time. Well, that doesn't just mean that, you know, the, the end product changes all the time, but the way that you're building the end product changes all the time. You know, uh, you get a nasty gram in the mail saying that the version of this Java library that you're depending on uh, has this incredible vulnerability that's going to destroy your business unless you update it. But then updating it requires you to update 20 other different things. And in the process of updating those 20 other different things, there's a breaking change somewhere in there that screws around with your tool set somehow. So now you need to change your tool set. And now that you're in the process of changing your tool set, you're realizing, okay, well, the way that we even just build our code base and package up assets before they're, you know, introduced to a later part of the pipeline is actually not that efficient. Gosh, it'd be nice if we could sort of fix that. Uh, that kind of arises naturally. Um, and a lot of companies are realizing that, well, this is not just a thing that happens every once in a while. This happens all the time. So we should have a team of people who are focused on that specifically. 
there was uh, when I worked for Microsoft, we did have such such team such a team is called the One Engineering System, and then within a lot of other product teams. There are, um, they sort of plug into tools that the one engineering system would build, one ES as it's called. Um, and then they would, they would build tooling on top of that. Uh, so for example, I, I worked on the .NET team. Well, the, the .NET product itself is made up of a large number of open source repositories. And so now, and there were some custom constraints with building that. And so they had to build a, a, their own distributed build system. And, and they looked at some stuff that was off the shelf First, they tried to look at some stuff that Google had built. They looked at some products. None of them seemed to be able to fit with the unique constraints that our system had. And so they spun up two engineering teams dedicated to building a uh, build system. And the reason why it was unique is because it had to fit part a subsets of it had to fit into the larger Visual Studio products so that we could have coherent builds where the .NET system would be built but then it could be inserted into the part of Visual Studio that it matters into. And like, this is, this is like a classic case of, an or, of a unique organizational problem where you have constraints about how your product is built and then constraints how subsets of your product are then incorporated into another part of a product. Um, there's, no, th there's no tool that you could buy that's gonna solve this for you. Um, and I, I, I think that we're immature as an industry today and not doing things well because we're now only just starting to realize that we need dedicated teams who can uh, solve these sorts of problems rather than just trying to solve them ad hoc one at a time. Uh, and I think it's going to take a while to get to the point where we can, um, where, where, you know, every organization past a certain threshold just automatically now has a developer experience team. Um, I hope that that's the case, but uh, it might take a while before we get there. <laughs> It might take. So um, um, a while back, I read an um, uh, article, a research article from Adobe. Um, I lost reference, but uh, they were pointing out that crossing a certain threshold, and I cannot remember what threshold is, companies should invest 25% of their engineering capacity on these platform teams just to focus on abstract some concepts and and figuring out how to focus 80% of the problems that are um, uh, avoiding uh, uh, engineering teams to move faster to production, which is very interesting. And I think that that supports that. And then I, I really like your spin that every company, every context is unique. You gave the example uh, that you know. At Microsoft, integrating these two different worlds, right, .NET and Visual Studio, um, you have unique constraints that you need to build things in a certain way at the same time that .NET is open source and it's serving other platforms and, uh, and other tools. It's a unique constraint that Microsoft have. I don't believe that um, many other companies in the world have this type of constraints. So what are the heuristics that you recommend for a company to look to their own context to reason about their needs for developer experience? So how do you, so how do you, hmm, I'm thinking. And when I, when I think I say, I say words that don't make sense. Um, Which is fine. It's, it's a tricky question I, as I well. I mean, it's some, in a way it's some, uh, I'm a product manager, so of course I'm going to say something that that is biased. But in a way, it's somewhat of a product management problem, right? So if you want to, how do you? The, 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 this this is somewhat of a flavor of of how do how do I improve my product, right? Well, there's a lot of different ways you could improve a product. Uh, usually, the recommended way is to try to talk to a representative um, set of your user base and just ask them, what are the things that you're struggling with? What are the problems that you have? And, you know, you want to go in with some hypotheses. You want to, you want to say, okay, well, you know, I believe that users struggle with this thing. I believe that users are not happy when this, this other thing happens. And sometimes it's super obvious, like, uh, and sometimes you can just go and fix those, but uh, the, the tricky things are not obvious in product development. And so you go and 
you you have to invalidate your assumptions that that you make about the, the the nature of your product and how users interact with it and what they what they feel about it uh and then you get feedback and you learn so many different things about what can improve based off of what they're trying to do um i think that model could apply to developer experience right you want to get a, a sample of developers in your organization um you want to go in thinking, okay, like you need to have some understanding at least of the pains that they have when they are uh, building software for your organization. Um, it could be like random hypothesis. I doubt this would probably be true, but the one hypothesis could be, I believe that all the developers in my organization are struggling to open their editor, right? Now, it's probably not true, but that is a hypothesis that you could test and you can talk to your engineers and if none of them hint at all that they're having problems with opening their editor you're like okay cool well that's not a developer experience problem you have to go and solve you could have another one where you could say i believe that developers are that developers feel like builds are taking too long right now of course if you were to go in and ask an engineer hey would you like it if we made builds faster of course they're going to say yes <laughs> but um that's that's something that that's why you want to develop you want to perhaps apply a, a bit of product management craft to this where you say okay well it's not just ask them if they want something good and it's not just ask them hey our build's too slow it's understanding where they're coming from and if they think something is too slow why and does that make sense relative to what they're actually doing uh or is it just that you're talking to someone who wants everything to be faster and they just get really, really mad if for like every single little second that's spent doing something. And then you could say, yeah, you know, if we made this 10 seconds faster, okay, sure, that'd be nice. But that's not a very economical effort on our part to improve developer experience because there's likely other areas that, that struggle with. And so um, I guess I'm biased, but I think that if you have the word experience in there, be it developer experience or user experience, and you want to figure out how do we improve this, uh, approach it like any other product management problem. And if you don't have people who can do that, you should hire people who can do that or, or, or build or allow them to build that, um, that expertise themselves. You know, there's a lot of engineers out there who may not necessarily want to pursue a role as a product manager doing user experience stuff. But if you say, Hey, um, if you're interested in being a, you know, air quotes product manager, but for the purposes of, of improving internal tooling experiences and the developer experience, of the organization as a whole, um, I think a lot of people would jump at that opportunity. And so, um, yeah, that's what I think. Which is a great advice, right? So, uh, and that is the thing. I believe that we have all the crafts in our industry and um, just picking them and applying. And that is when heuristics become patterns to different types of problems and seeing that if solves, we move on. And you gave a great example how product management is well known, not always well executed, which is a different topic, but how to pick up the product management craft and rather than we look to outside the product that the company sells, we look to inside, right? Look to the to the value stream and how we do things. It's it's a great advice, right? Um, which might help the, the audience out there. Next question, and we are uh, rolling towards the end of the episode. In the beginning, you said that in the last year two years, the developer experience term gain more um, uh, uh, traction. Uh, people can go to the Google search terms and uh, even try out that uh, feature in Google that shows how the terms becomes popular. Then they will tell us if we are right or wrong. But my question is, how do we avoid that this becomes a bandwagon? Exactly what happened uh, uh, with uh, DevOps. There were lots of companies selling DevOps tools. Sorry, Microsoft with uh, Azure DevOps and, and GitLab with uh, Auto DevOps, right? So how do we become that developer experience becomes bloated? What is your view? I, um, I'm not sure we can avoid it. Uh, so 
you know, I wasn't, um, <clears throat> so with the rise of DevOps, I, I was in college, uh, I'll be honest, I like the only perception that I have of that, that time frame is that I knew that it was a thing and I, and I saw like you know, a little bit of historical stuff and, you know, I've talked to people, but, you know, I wasn't there from the beginning. Um, but what I understand of that is that there were real problems that people needed to, to have solved there. And there was a lot of noise involved in trying to solve it. But what we came out with was, you know, perhaps not perfect. I think, you know, there's still organizations out there that call, you know, certain teams DevOps teams. And I'm sure people who are part of the DevOps movements just die on the inside every time they hear that. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's all kinds of patterns and practices related to DevOps that are, that, that are just absolute noise. You know, I'm sure every, every consultant out there that sells an agile scrum framework 5.0 also managed to attach the word DevOps to it and say, this is the way it's done. <laughs> but I think it succeeded in that, like it's pretty well understood in our industry that you should continuously integrate your code. Uh, and if you want to track down why things happened, attach that to your source control system uh, and then extend that notion, if you can, to your deployment so that you could say, OK, we're not only continuously integrating with the rest of the code base whenever we make a change. And, you know, there's lots of different ways you can do that. Uh, but ultimately, it's trackable. It's tied to your source control management system. And then you can then apply that same principle to deploying something out in the world. And you could very there's a lot of tooling out there now and a lot of people who understand that, OK, if I burn a git commit. SHA into, you know, this Docker image or something that I produce as, as, as an artifact of, of a build that runs when, when I've, something has succeeded. And let's say something, I want to track down what led to that build. Well, there we go. I have the ID that tells me exactly at what point in time in, in code something happened. Um, and that's great. I think we're going to see a similar arc happen with developer experiences. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily know what it's going to look like. Uh, I have some hypotheses and I, and I, so I think that, um, we're going to see, uh, a lot of things related to, um, I guess the, the cloud or cloud native, uh, developer experiences. Um, so we still live in this weird world where we write a lot of code on a local machine, but then the, the system that is being deployed and that is live is living in this, this like cloud operating system world where resources are ephemeral and there's all kinds of interesting stuff that, that goes on. I think a lot of those principles will apply to um, developer experiences themselves, you know, uh, and, and patch over a lot of the flaws that, that people struggle with. You know, I'll give one concrete example. Um, doing non-trivial Python development kind of sucks sometimes. <laughs> like there's uh, uh, it, 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 the, just cause the way that the runtime and packages work, uh, you can very easily mess up your local environment. Uh, and so people have said, okay, well, you know, we'll dockerize our uh, development environment for Python. Um, and, and then there's other options, like you can, you can create what's called a con an Anaconda environment or a virtual environment or a VN, which is different from a virtual environment or a PIP end, which is also different from those others. Uh, there's all these kind of competing solutions to create a, like an isolated environment that you install dependencies on. And like, that's sort of the contain container, either actual container or virtual container that your application runs in. Um, just to try to avoid the problem of your local development machine getting destroyed and you having to pave over that whole thing and reinstall everything. Um, in a cloud world, why would you have to care about that, right? Every time you go and write some code, it could just be a new environment that you spin up that, uh, you know, from, from session to session, it's a different actual environment, but your, your environment itself is like in infrastructure as code turned into your development environment. Um, there's, there's some activity around that right now. Uh, you know, there's a couple of competing companies that are trying to, you know, push the right product there. Um, but I think, you know, who knows who's going to succeed in, in this sort of world. But I think 10 years from now, we're going to see most developers, at least certainly those who are in cloud development, which is exploding, um, or even just web development, uh, being in this sort of world. Um, and I think 10, maybe 15 years from now, there are there, there may be that probably be some other practices that that we have and other kinds of tools not necessarily a specific tool but kinds of tools that that we 
now almost take for granted. Uh, and and we'll, we'll probably be in a, in a place where if you're not following these practices, then people are going to be shocked. Just in the way that they're shocked today, that if you are writing code for a living and you're not using source control, then what are you doing, right? <laughs> um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see some things align with that. I, th I think another interesting side of this, and that this gets into another noisy area, which is uh, introducing AI into um, to uh, uh, different parts of applications. We're now starting to see AI starting to get infused into development environments and uh, writing your code itself, such as with GitHub Code. Uh, sorry, GitHub Copilot. Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to see more along those lines of like AI assisted problem solving. So that sort of, sort of the, 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 the toil of writing code is, can be automated a little bit more so that you can focus more on solving problems. Um, but yeah, I guess to answer your question again, um, I don't think we're going to avoid the noise and the hype trains and the, the, the consultants trying to sell you a million things and, and all that that's going to go with it. Um, I wish it were different, uh, but I feel like it's inevitable, you know, especially with a lot of startups starting right now that, uh, that are focused on developer experiences and um, those are going to morph into more startups and then less startups and then more practices and then less practices and larger companies are going to create versions of products or they're going to try to adapt their products, such as the Microsoft example, calling it Azure DevOps. You know, we'll probably see another Microsoft product that is, you know, there's a new practice or we'll call it, uh, let's just say DevX, uh, oh, Microsoft DevX or something, Azure DevX. And, and like, it's a name that kind of doesn't make sense or whatever, but like, it's fine. Um, it'll be okay. I think we'll be better for it in the long run. It'll just be kind of annoying as we get there. And I hope that um, people know how to cut through the noise and recognize that there, there is a lot of value there. Definitely. And thanks for your uh, honest answer. And, um, well, you just described uh, um, co-evolution, right? So uh, um, this is how things evolve. One of my passions are uh, worldly maps, which exactly... We are able to map this type of evolutions of practices and uh, uh, other components. So uh, will be an interesting, definitely developer experience will be a very interesting area uh, in the upcoming future. Last question before we round up. What are the resources, uh, books, podcasts, blog posts, uh, videos that you recommend to the audience? Um, I think there's a couple different things. So going back to one of the, the publishers that I mentioned, uh, Andreessen Horowitz has this publishing arm of their, um, their firm, and they do talk about developer experiences. Um, I think there's, they, they have a, a really, really good article that's super long that's written by, um, uh, and uh, a founder in, in the observability space. Uh, her name is Jean Yang. And she talks about like, basically she tries to frame up what is developer experience and what are some concrete examples of things that matter. Um, she also has a follow-up article uh, that is about, um, gosh, I forget the name of it, but it's basically like an acknowledgement that there are millions of engineers out there that are working with legacy systems and it's irresponsible to not service them when we talk about developer experience. Um, I'm sure the millions of developers working in those legacy systems will appreciate words like that. Uh, but that's also, that's a, that's a business thing, right? Like it's irresponsible from a business standpoint to not address their, their problems. Um, I think there's a couple of other interesting things that, could, that people could look at, maybe not necessarily articles, but things that they could try that, um, you know, maybe you don't roll this out in your workplace, but you try it out and you see what a potential future could look like. Um, cloud development environments. I think if you if you pick between Gitpod or GitHub Code Spaces, um, I think Code Spaces requires you to sign up right now, so it might actually just be Gitpod uh, to try it out for free. But trying out the notion of 
fundamentally shifting your development environment into the cloud and seeing what it's like. And like, this is not like a cloud IDE, like, like what, uh, what AWS has for writing some serverless functions. It's, it's, it's about scripting your development environment and then being able to on demand, create it in a container and just trivially destroy, reproduce, snapshot, do anything you want with that and integrate it with uh, GitHub. Um, I think that's something that everybody should try out and see if it works well for them. Um, another interesting tool that people should try out is SourceGraph. So it's global code search, right? They have indexed basically all of the public code on GitHub and you can navigate across pretty much any language and see what, what things do. And that's, you know, imagine if you didn't have to text search across different languages and then you can extend that now. Like, uh, I don't, I think you would have to pay for this, but you can, you can do like batch changes where you can say, okay, we're going to intelligently understand where all the things are. And now we can intelligently apply a batch change. That's going to modify them all at the same time. And we know that's going to be correct. Uh, another interesting thing for people to try out. Um, and then, uh, I think, um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll probably leave it at that. I, I don't want to, I don't want to ramble too long, but I think that those two articles frame up developer experience and why it matters really, really well. Um, and then uh, those, those two examples of concrete things that you could try out that represent a fundamentally different way to do things uh, are worth just trying and seeing if it works. And, you know, this, this, this is effectively an, a, a take or experimentation on how developer experiences could change. Um, if you find that it doesn't work for you, that's great. You should tell the people who uh, work for those, those, those companies and uh, tell them to do something different. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the resources. I will make sure that they are uh, on the description of the episode. And thanks for your suggestions. In the end, this is how innovation goes, right? We experiment. It works, doesn't work. But at least if we have an opinion or we can spin up our own company as software engineers, will improve our workplace. And with this, we get to the end of the episode. I want to, once again, thank you for your time to be with us and uh, share your experience. Yeah, thank you for having me. Cool. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast. Visit our webpage, softwarecraftspodcast.com or visit our page on LinkedIn. Hope to count on you next week.